And it is Jesus who makes today glorious. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. We are so glad you decided to join us today. A very blessed Resurrection Lord's Day to you. In today's message from Luke chapter 24, we will see that our Lord Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead is huge. Today, we will look at the testimony of two men who had the very unexpected privilege of meeting the risen Savior as they walked on the road to a place called Emmaus. And now with his message for today is our pastor, Robert Elliott. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is huge. It is a very big deal. The Bible does not in any way, shape, or form teach reincarnation. The Bible does not teach annihilation, that somehow when we die, we just stop existing. No way. The Bible teaches bodily resurrection. It did so in the Old Testament, and it does so in the New Testament. Jesus Christ's resurrection is a big deal. Listen, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, may I add, because he was resurrected from the dead, for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait for him. That's Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Listen to John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Under inspiration, the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Christ's bodily resurrection is huge. The biblical doctrine of bodily resurrection is very hard to miss as you read through Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead in Revelation 1.5. He, Christ, who was delivered over to the cross because of our transgressions and was raised in bodily resurrection because of our justification. That's Romans 4.25. The resurrected Christ is called the first fruits of those who are asleep in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. The first fruits are the ones that are emblematic and prototypical of all the others. And because Jesus Christ was raised bodily, resurrected from the dead, we too will be raised bodily, resurrected from the dead, either to a resurrection of judgment if we reject Jesus Christ as Savior up until the point of our death, or a resurrection to life if we take in him by faith as our Savior. Lord Jesus Christ himself said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, that's John 5, 28 and 29, our Lord Jesus said of himself, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, 
the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Messiah's bodily resurrection was anticipated hundreds and hundreds of years before the first Christmas. Psalm 16.10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that was a Hebrew way of saying the grave, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then God's power for us to live the Christian life is the power that he raised his son Jesus from the dead with. You have the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, operative in your day-to-day living if you're a born-again believer. That's the message of Ephesians 1, 18 to 23. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is huge. If, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. But this Easter Sunday morning, with all that is in every fiber of our being, we say, he is risen. He is alive. The grave could not hold him. He is alive. Jesus had three and a half years only with his disciples. What did he do with that time? What priorities did he strike for just three and a half years of ministering with his followers, his 12 followers, while he was on earth in public ministry? Well, he proved that he was God. He did his father's will impeccably. He stayed on message. He stayed on task. He equipped those disciples to stay on message. And that equipping included telling them, one, that he would die, and two, that he would rise from the dead. After his bodily resurrection, Jesus Christ had 40 days before he was to ascend back to his Father's right hand in heaven. 40 days from the Easter Sunday resurrection event to the ascension event back to his Father's right hand. What did Jesus choose to prioritize during those 40 days? Well, he appeared to Peter, alive from the dead. He appeared then to the 12, alive from the dead. And then he appeared to more than 5,000 people in one huge group, alive from the dead. And then he promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now let's get even more precise. From the three and a half years to the 40 days, there was just a few short hours that the risen Christ walked on a roadway with two bewildered followers of his after the resurrection. The road was a road to Emmaus, and Jesus spent time with the men who he met walking on the road to Emmaus only a matter of hours. What did Jesus prioritize as being most important to do during those choice hours? Our text today is going to show us. And what I've titled this text is, What Our Lord Ate, What Our Lord Fed to Others. As I've mentioned, our scripture text is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 53. Of course, I'm going to read these verses with you in this message, and I'm going to stop often to make some comments and some applications of the truth that we'll be seeing. I'm reading this morning from the New American Standard Bible, and I'm beginning at Luke 24, verse 13. Please follow in your Bibles. And behold, 
Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. The little phrase there, of them, and behold, two of them, this of them refers generally to a big group of believers in Jesus rather than just to the smaller subset of the 11 apostles who would be uh, witnesses to his resurrection. This was the general terms, people who had come to believe in Jesus and his ministry as their savior while he was on earth. Two of those people were walking on this road to Emmaus, verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Of course, all these things which had taken place referred to Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trials, Jesus' crucifixion, and the report of Jesus' dramatic resurrection. Verses 19 to 24 of our text would make that abundantly clear that that was what the of these things was referring to. Let's go on, verses 15 and 16. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Will you notice, please, that the text says that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him? You know what that means? The implication is, had their eyes not been prevented from recognizing him, they would have recognized him. And exactly that's what we see in verse 31. Skip your eye down to verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This, my friends, argues for a same body, bodily resurrection. That is to say, our Lord Jesus Christ raised to life in the same body in which he was crucified. For example, when he rose from the dead... He still had the nail holes in his hands and in his feet. He still had the spear wound under his rib cage. It was a same body resurrection. He's the first fruits of all who sleep, so we too will be resurrected in our same bodies, glorified. So there's at least two wonderful implications of this pattern of Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection, which is the pattern for our resurrections, the first encouragement is we will recognize our loved ones who are in heaven. We'll know them. They'll know us. Second, our loved ones will know us. We'll know them. We'll recognize them. They will recognize us. Thank you, Pastor Rob, for your message today. It's time now for you talk with Pastor Nicholas Rogers. Good morning, this is Pastor Nicholas and happy Resurrection Day. And today we're going to continue as we started last week and we talked about the death of Christ. And I know as we consider the resurrection of Christ and today we are to celebrate because he is alive, but he is always alive. And we don't just celebrate this for one day, but I want us as we started last week, we looked at how um, the life of, of Christ and how everything um, how Jesus died on the cross. But I want us, before we look at to the happy story of the resurrection, I want us to think of some things. Because I want us to look at Romans 5, starting at verse 6 to 11, to show us exactly what happened. And this is what it says in Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
Again, as we consider this, he died at the right time. Not the wrong time, not just any time, but the right time. For rarely will someone die for just a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even die. But God proved his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And then how much more having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. And as we consider this, we want to just break it down very, you know, this morning we want to look at a couple of details. We want to see again, as we talked about, we were helpless. We could not do it ourselves. It was nothing that we could do to change our standing. But Christ died for the ungodly. He died for you. He died for me. He died for people who could not do it on their own, who could not pay their own sins. And we are here because we have to recognize as we look at Romans 3, 23, we have all sinned. So we needed someone to help us. He goes in verse 7, he talks about how someone might die for a good person. But Christ, he died for us who were sinners, who wanted nothing to do with him, who were his enemies. He died for us. Now, I want you to consider that. Because when we consider and we look at the resurrection, and because we had, he's alive and well today, we know that we have hope. He died for us when we could not save ourselves. He died for us because he loved us. He died for us so that we could be reconciled to him, that we could have a relationship with him. And I want to challenge you this morning as we, you know, look at this great Easter and we look at what happened and what went on and, you know, everything that, that happened. I want us to remember that because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, we can live for him. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection just isn't just a story. It meant something then and it means something now. You see, we, we talked about last week, we talked about TV programs and great movies that we like, superhero movies. They may have a time and a place. But this story, it was for the past and it's for the present and it continues on forever because it is the hope of our salvation. It is the hope of everything we believe. I talked about last week as we consider what would change if we just stopped at Jesus' death. And when I said everything would change because it would change. Because he would be no different than the other leaders. You see, Jesus died and rose again so we could be saved from sin and live for him. He set us free. He gave us a new life. And now we have this relationship. We have been reconciled with God. What a hope that we have. As we consider, as we look at just a part of that Easter story in, in Luke chapter 24, verse 6 to 11, it says this. As, as they already placed him in the tomb and it had been a, a time and, and the ladies had been there. They came first and they saw the stone had been rolled away. It says this. He is not here. But he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered the words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the older women with them were telling the apostle these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. 
When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Again, as we consider this, and we consider this great day that we celebrate, and we remember our death as we remember we were in sin, and now we can be reconciled because of the resurrection and because of what Christ has done for us. It's so amazing to think about. Because you may be listening to this story, and you may, you may be listening this morning, you may say to yourself, wow, what an incredible thing. But you know what? You don't know me, Pastor Nicholas. I have done so much wrong in my life that Jesus wouldn't want nothing to do with me. He wouldn't want nothing to do with me, and there's no reason to, to celebrate this. I want us to look at that last verse again in verse 12. It says this, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stopped to look and he saw only the linen cloth, so he went away amazed at what had happened. When we look at that and we consider Peter, here's the same man that denied Jesus three times. Here it is, he runs to the tomb and he is ec ecstatic. He's amazed at what had happened. You see, Peter finally went to Jesus' tomb to check for himself and there was an empty tomb. The story of Jesus' miraculous resurrection wasn't just a good story. It was and is a true story as well. Again, as we consider the true story and we consider how, um, you know, when we watch these, these movies and stuff that say based on a true story and, and think to ourselves, wow, that's incredible to think about. What an incredible story this is. What a life-changing story this is. As we consider the superheroes saving these people from these different things, when we consider what the superhero Jesus did for us on that cross, died, paid the price for our sin. And as we think of Good Friday and we mourn that death and we think about it, if we didn't have Sunday, Friday would mean nothing. But because we have the resurrection, we have this everything so in front of us, we are so excited. And many would say it's a Super Bowl Sunday of the Christian faith as people get excited. But the reality is that when we consider this, we don't need not to get excited just for one day. But we need to get excited for the rest of our lives because for us who know Christ, we have been saved from our sin and we worship a risen king. He's alive and well every single day of our life, not just today, not just this resurrection Sunday. Yes, we celebrate it, but we should celebrate it every single day of our lives because we can be reconciled to him. So I want to challenge you as we close. Again, there are a lot of good stories out there, but they're not all true. There are a lot of Good, true stories out there, but they can't change your life. And that's why the Easter story matters so much. It's the most important story we can tell because the Easter story is more than a story. It's a story that has changed everything and a story that can change you just like it changed me. Again, as we today prepare, as you may be listening to the broadcast and you go to a church this Sunday, I want to challenge you to consider how this story can change your life. Whether you already know Jesus or not, I believe there's something in every one of our lives that needs to be resurrected by the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. And I want to challenge you as you consider this. Look at your life and ask Jesus, what is it that I need to do? What more can I do for you? Because I want to worship a risen king. And I don't want to just worship him today, but I want to worship him with the rest of my life and every day of my life. This is Pastor Nicholas. This has been an edition of Utah. 
It's time for today's Ministry Spotlight. This morning, I'm in the radio studio with Dr. Stephen Lewis. Good morning, brother. Good morning. Dr. Lewis serves as the president of Rocky Mountain Bible College and Seminary in beautiful Denver, Colorado. And uh, I'd like you to tell us, Dr. Lewis, um, if someone's listening this morning and they really would like to know God's Word better, they really like to know theology, the study of God better, how could, might they be able to do that on their own, uh, self-study? Well, probably the best way in which to study the Bible, which is going to sound kind of odd, is to read it. <laughs> uh, I find that uh, people have a tendency to read about the Bible, to read what others say about the Bible, and don't spend the sufficient time in the Bible. Right. So if you have a, tr- have a, tr- a translation into your language, and you're literate, you can read, or you're not literate and you can hear, you can get recordings now and MP3s and all various ways now to be in it. And I've always shared with students as they go through their coursework, you need to read the Bible. The idea that you can read about it is helpful, but only after reading it many times. Harry Ironside, one of the famous preachers of the early 20th century, uh, made a habit. He says, before I ever preach on a book of the Bible, I read it through 40 times. Wow. Now, that's an amazing amount of time, but it sounds like, well, that kind of, you know, I got it, I got it. No, not really. The more you read it, the more it becomes a part of who you are, and then you know how to do it. Now, we were trained under a method called the Bible study method, which is fairly easy. Make observations. What do you see in the text? What is it saying? Make it list. And the first time you go through, it's kind of like an inventory. You know, there's 13 words in this verse. Uh, there's these verbs. This is what it's saying. Uh, these are the descriptors. And then once you get through what you think is all of the inventory of what's there, then you look at relationships. How are words related? How are the pronouns being used? How are these things there? And it's something that you can teach a child to do. So it's not that difficult. But sometimes we confuse people by giving them other people's books on opinions. And commentaries have a value. And that value is it asks questions of the text that you did not know to ask of it. Mm-hmm. That's right. But if you're looking for answers, there's only one book that gives answers, and that's the Bible itself. And I would read both old and new. Now, if you're a brand, if you're a pre-believer, I'd start in the Gospel of John, because I believe it has given insight into what it takes to become a believer in Jesus Christ, what it takes to have faith in Him, and what that means, as stated in its purpose statement in John 20, 30, and 31. So, that's a good place to begin. And from there, I would just begin to go into the New Testament, but I'd always start to begin to read through the Old Testament. God has been sovereign through all of this and it's not something where he's a different person in the New Testament than he was in the Old. His faithfulness to those things which are addressed in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is the same faithfulness he has to believers today in the New Testament church. So just get into the Word. You cannot read it enough to be able to say, I think I've got that now. Almost everybody there that can read can see the simplicity of that revelation, but also know the complexity and the depth of things that we can still learn from it on an ongoing basis. That's excellent. I think it was Dr. Ironside that 
visited our alma mater, Dallas Theological Seminary, near the end of his life. And there was a question and answer time, and someone asked him, uh, what would you do different in your life? And he said, I would read the Bible more yeah. and books about the Bible less. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's easy. And I think one of the things that uh, Pastor Rob and I share in common is that we have a tendency over our years to collect books on things, and we really need to go back to the Scriptures totally. And people can do that with very little input from anything else. Yes. And it's amazing what's there. And, yes. and always be aware when someone says, I know it says this, but it really doesn't mean this. They'd better have a very good explanation of why that is. Right. When the plain sense of the Bible makes good sense, seek no other sense, or you're Amen. left with nonsense. That's right. Now, let's turn from that simple answer, which is so profound, to self-study the Bible, read it. How would you say about the self-study of theology? Well, I think... Theology ought to be born out of your reading of the Bible itself. Too often, people will give you the categories that they think theology ought to be placed and may miss some things that are clearly presented in Scripture just out of historical precedence. So everything that's talked about, every subject given in the Scripture is a theology of that subject. And we think because we've got it narrowed down to eight or seven, depending on whatever it may be, biblical theology is the best place to begin. Systematic theology can only be tackled after you've done an exhaustive biblical theology of the subjects that are covered there. Uh, Dr. Lewis, help us to know the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology, please. Biblical theology is born out of the study and the reading of the Scripture on and including all the subjects that are there, small, large, etc. Once you've done, let's say you're doing the Gospel of John on different subjects, you, you think you've covered all the subjects that are in John's Gospel, but the amazing thing is that John the Apostle also wrote... For other writings, mm -hmm. 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. So before you can understand how John uses the terms in his writing, you need to know how he uses the terms in his writings, all of them together. So let's say you take all five of those books and you understand it. Now you have a fairly firm grip of how John uses certain terms. Guess what? You still have a long way to go. And what happens is, is most people from through the centuries have said, I think I know what this subject is. Now I'll just look elsewhere for that same subject. The problem is that author may not be using that same subject the same way that the other writer did. So the more you can do biblical theology, and it may take a long time. So I would not make systematic theology uh, an immediate goal, I would make that something that we would always refer back to to make sure there's no contradictions between the way we are examining the biblical data. Well, biblical theology today is probably one of the, the best safeguards against misunderstanding the text and misusing it in your theology. So systematic is really what used to be called the queen of the sciences. It took into consideration all of God's word and also all of God's world. Hmm. There's not really been a true systematic written 
that really meets that criteria as was once thought. Yes, that is very helpful. So the good news is, <laughs> if you are a born-again Christian, if you're converted, then you have the author of the Bible living inside of you. His name is the Holy Spirit of God. And so you can understand the Bible as you read it, as you pray over it, as you think about it, and you can start to put things together in your mind and, and understanding of certain topics that the Bible addresses. And you don't have to uh, necessarily um, rely on anyone else. It's fine to rely on your pastor's help if you have a pastor. Yes. But uh, we just have to be encouraged that the self-study of God's Word, the Bible, and of God's character and workings, uh, theology, is possible uh, because the Spirit of God lives in us. Amen. One of the worst things people can say to me when they leave the service, they shake my hand and say, Oh, Pastor, I never could have gotten that out of those verses. I, I don't like that. Amen. I want them to come away feeling that they see in the verses what's there, and they could see it too if they prayed and read it. You have been listening to the Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Today, our morning worship service begins at 10.30 a.m. in our sanctuary located at 62 Collins Avenue. Feel free to join us. You can also write us at eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And remember, everyone needs a savior. Savior.